0: The reading is Matthew, 5, Matthew 8, 5 to 13, and can be found on page 972 in the Red Bibles. Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking him for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heed him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a, ma- am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, Go, and he does, and that one, Come, and he, do- he comes. I say to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said this to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at, this, at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a great song
1: to sing before we come to God's word. Let's, let's just echo that prayer that we've sung in a moment of silence in our own hearts. Father, we pray you won't stay silent but you would be speaking to us today through your words, planting your will in us and growing in us the likeness of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've said, we're in our series, Encounters with Jesus, looking at several events in the Gospels where different people encounter Jesus and, and relate to him and respond to him, and he relates and responds to them in various ways. And, and each encounter is drawing something different out. And the big idea, the central thing from this encounter that we've just read about, the, the, the faith of the centurion, is, is just that. It's, it's the centurion's faith. That is the thing we're meant to take away from this. And just so we don't miss it, Jesus, Jesus is clear that that's what he wants us to take away. In verse 10, if you have a, a Bible in front of you or something on your phone, but chapter 8, verse 10 of Matthew, uh, Jesus speaking says, Truly I tell you. Now, anytime you see truly I tell you on Jesus' lips, that's a, like a, a, a flag for you. This is important. What I'm about to say next is important. Truly I tell you. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What's the big thing Jesus wants to highlight about this centurion? His faith. And just in case we missed it, verse 13, he underlines it again. Jesus says, let it be done just as you believed it would. And believe, faith, same word in Greek, in the original language. So, from this encounter with Jesus, what Jesus wants to draw out, wants the, the centurion to see, wants the crowds to see, and wants us to see, as we read 2,000 years later, is that this centurion is an example of great faith, because faith is a vital ingredient in relating to Jesus. It's vitally important in our relationship with Jesus, but but just as we start like that, we, we need to pause immediately, and we need to pause because actually, when we use that word faith today, I think we sometimes have a slightly odd idea about what we mean. Um, uh, I've got a picture here from Star Wars, um, Darth Vader. There, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And uh, in Star Wars, if you know it, if you don't know it, then don't worry too much. But um, There's this thing called the force, and some people are sensitive to the force, and some people are not sensitive to the force. It's kind of like this mystical, magical thing, and if you've got it, you've got it, and if you haven't, you haven't. And I kind of think that's how a lot of people think about faith. I wish I had your faith, that it's some sort of mystical, magical quality available to some who have a particular ability or technique, but not available to everyone, But actually, I don't think that's the way the Bible uses the word faith or thinks about the word faith. Actually, faith is something that is much more every day. It's something we are all exercising all the time in all our relationships. Whether that's a relationship at home, with family, friends, colleagues, whoever it is, we're all using faith all the time. Just for an example, uh, imagine you're at work and you're part of a team. And maybe you lead the team. Do you have faith in your team? Well, that'll, if you do, certain things will follow, right? You'll give them more work, more challenging work to do. You won't micromanage them. You'll let them get on with things. That will show you have faith in them. You trust them. Or if you're part of the team, do you have faith in your boss? Do you think they're going to be there for you? That they're going to back you when you need them? Now, that's a very everyday thing that we all do all the time. We put faith in people. That's work. You can translate that into other kinds of relationships. But today's question is, what faith do you have in Jesus? And this centurion is a model of what great faith looks like. So we're just going to walk through the passage and we're going to see why This is a model of great faith. What it means and what it looks like to have great faith in Jesus. And there's three things uh, that I'm going to draw out. And the first is this great faith. This centurion has great faith because he crosses a great boundary. Great faith crosses great boundaries. Uh, so verses 5 and 6 uh, tell us that this centurion has come to Jesus asking for help. He has a problem, and the problem relates to a valued servant who is suffering terribly. And the centurion can't bear to see this servant that he, he values highly, uh, suffering so much, and he knows that he can't do anything about it, so he comes to Jesus. Jesus. Now, it's a familiar story, I guess, to those of us who have read the Gospels a few times. Uh, maybe you're, you're here today and you're, you're not familiar with the Gospels. It's great to have you uh, with us. But, but for some people, uh, maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I've heard this one. Um, but actually, it would be a tremendously surprising story for those people who were first there and the first readers. And actually, it has a few surprises for us. It had a surprise for me this week. I saw something in this passage I had never seen before, and it's all about verse 7. And actually, I think the way you read verse 7 really changes how you see this whole encounter. Because verse 7, Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And I'd always read that, and maybe you'd always read it, as Jesus going, Oh, okay, someone needs help. Up. Shall I come? Shall I come? That's not what Jesus says. That's not the tone. It is not the way the original reads. At all. It's more like this. Oh, and you expect me to come, do you? Me? It's actually a little bit indignant. It's a bit of a rebuke from Jesus. Who do you think you are? You want me to come to your house? Now, I find that surprising. (laughs) Why does Jesus do that? Well, he's not being mean. Jesus always has a purpose in his motives and his actions. And by doing what he does, he actually draws out from the centurion just how great his faith is. And I think that draws out some lessons for us on what great faith uh, looks like. Uh, And one of the things he's trying to get him to realize you expect me to come to you. Don't you know I'm a Jew? Uh, Not just a Jew, I'm the Jewish Messiah, and you are a Gentile. We don't have a natural friendship and relationship here. I'm not supposed to enter your house. Jews and Gentiles are not supposed to mix like that. And the moment you sort of see verse 7 in that light, another story... Uh, might come to mind a little later in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 15 the story of the Canaanite woman I've got a table up here Um, really interesting both of them are Gentiles they both come to Jesus with a request to to heal somebody somebody precious to them and Jesus initially shows reluctance you expect me to come to you or do you remember the Canaanite woman he says I I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel you know I'm not for you And both of them, even though he initially sort of rebuffs them, they both persist. They both carry on. Yes, Lord, but can't you help me? And Jesus, in both cases, is impressed. Two of the only places in Matthew's gospel where Jesus mentions what great faith someone has. And the only two places in Matthew's gospel where Jesus heals somebody at a distance. Doesn't even go. Because their faith is so great he doesn't have to. He can just say the word. I think Matthew is quite clearly trying to put these two stories side by side. And, And it is surprising and interesting because if you know Matthew's gospel, you might know it's the most Jewish of the gospels. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, is is really um, trying to drive home that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He traces how he's descended from David. He shows time and again how he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And yet even here in the most Jewish of the gospels, the two great examples of faith are from Gentiles. Now, why is it that this is being highlighted so? Well, because great faith crosses great boundaries, and there is no greater boundary than the boundary between Jew and Gentile in the Bible's thinking. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the king of Israel, and all the way back in Psalm 2, it says the Gentiles, the nations, plot against the Lord and is anointed in vain, and God laughs at them because his king is established, and none can stand against him. But the situation here is if this is a Gentile approaching Jesus, they're not naturally on the same side. He's one of the nations that's plotting and opposing God and his Messiah. And so that is a huge thing, isn't it? To, to walk up to somebody who is at least potentially an enemy and say, can, can you help me? You have to have great faith to do that. It's a a bit like, look, if I have a local problem, someone's not picking up my bins or something like that, I might write to my local councillor, right? He's he's got a bit of a duty toward me. If it's more serious, uh, it might be that I write to my local MP. But I'm unlikely to write to the President of America or the Premier of China, right? What have they got to do with me? How is it any of their business? And yet that's kind of what the centurion's doing here walking up to the Jewish Messiah and saying, can you help me? Great faith crosses great boundaries. Uh, Do you sometimes think that you need to sort of get in with Jesus before you can get something from him? Well, maybe I'll go to church a bit more regularly, and and then I'll start praying, and then maybe Jesus will help me. Uh, You know, treating Jesus like sort of a client relationship manager system. No, no, no. Anytime you come to Jesus... First time, you come as somebody who has no natural right to a relationship and you don't need to give him reasons. Great faith just walks up to this Jesus who has, has no responsibility toward you at all and says, can you help me? You'll do that if you see Jesus the way this centurion does. And the more you read about Jesus and the more you see his kindness and generosity the more confident you will become to cross greater and greater boundaries and approach him. Great faith crosses great boundaries. Second point, great faith sees a great Jesus. So um, this verse 7 question, this kind of rebuke, you want me to come to you? Part of it might be about the Jew-Gentile thing, and as a a Jew, Jesus shouldn't enter a Gentile's house. Uh, There could be another thing going on as well. This is a centurion, a soldier, a senior soldier in the Roman army, and, and Rome has conquered the Jews at this point. So in theory, he's the one with all the power and authority, right? He, he's the invading, conquering army. He's a high-ranking soldier. And maybe he would think that he can just come and order people about. And maybe Jesus' rebuke in verse 7 is to make sure the centurion realises... And the crowd realises, you can't strong-arm Jesus like that. You expect me to come to you? Do you think you can order me around because you're a Roman centurion? Do you think that impresses me? Do you think you have authority over me? Well, if that's the question, the answer is obviously no. Verse 8, verse 9. Uh, the centurion doesn't think like that at all. Verse 8, Lord. I mean, that's, that's pretty big, right? For a conquering Roman centurion to call Jesus Lord. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. No, no, no. This isn't, he's not trying to order Jesus about. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. For I myself am a man Under, probably better, a man of authority. He says, I understand authority. I know how authority works. I've got soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. That one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion understands what authority looks like. The centurion knows he has authority. When he says stuff, things happen. When he tells his servants and soldiers to do things, he can order them and they will respond. But when he sees Jesus, he sees someone of far greater authority. Someone who doesn't just command other people, but but can command diseases. Can command the wind and the waves. Can command life and death itself. Oh no, I'm not worthy to have you in my house, he says. You can control life and death with a word. The centurion sees a very great Jesus. A Jesus with very great authority. And again, that just brings us back to where we started and and our ideas of faith today. I, I think for a lot of people, faith does feel like something, an ability or something that we have or we can master something we do, or something in us. But the Bible says, no, no, faith is a trust you have in someone or something else. And so you don't get great faith by learning 10 simple tricks. You get great faith by seeing a great Jesus. The bigger, more powerful, more authoritative you think he is, the greater your faith will be. Now, you can inform that with information and ideas, but but at some point, it, it's an act of trust. Um, a few weeks ago, I took my godson to Go Ape. I think we've got a picture here, not of us, but um, it was a bit like that. Uh, you go on these quite long zip wires. And I'll tell you, even as a, an adult and all the rest of it, um, let alone being sort of maybe 10 years old, um, you get up there and for a you're just like, oh, hang on, this is quite scary. <laughs> it's a long way down. And of course, you can tell yourself all sorts of stuff, can't you? Oh, come on. They, loads of people are doing this. I've seen lots of people go down. They've all been fine. Uh, you know, There's never been any press stories about loads of great accidents here. They're running a successful business. I'm sure it wouldn't be. You, know. you can tell yourself all that, can't you? And it's all very sensible to do if you're worried. But at some point, <laughs> you have to say, do I trust this wire is strong enough to hold me? And you've got to go for it. In the end, faith in Jesus is, do I, do I trust he is great enough to do what I need? Great faith sees a great Jesus. The centurion needed help. He had a suffering servant, a terribly suffering servant. And did he think Jesus was up to the task? A great Jesus. That's what great faith sees. We live in a world which tells us to have faith in ourselves. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are things in your life you can't solve. Just like the centurion. There are problems you've got that your own abilities and capacities can't meet. In particular, the Bible says sin and death. But do you see in Jesus one great enough to provide everything... You need. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. He can do what I need. That's the faith the Bible calls us to. That's the faith the centurion has. Great faith crosses great boundaries. Great faith sees a great Jesus. And finally and briefly, great faith leads to the great feast. Great faith leads to the great feast. Now, feasting is a big idea throughout the Bible. Um, Whenever Jesus tells stories about what the kingdom of heaven's like, it's so often they're in a banquet or a party of some kind uh, because that's life with God. Jesus says it's joy, it's feasting. Coming to live with God in his kingdom forever is the most joyous thing you could ever uh, imagine. And he gives lots of um, things in the Old Testament that point that way. When he rescues his people out of Egypt, one of the first things they do is they have a meal, a feast, before God at the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, In Isaiah, he promises a great feast that God will prepare. Uh, And this became known as the Messianic banquet, the the thing that God's people would be called to on the day when God brings his kingdom to earth. Uh, And it's the great feast to end all feasts some of that language is picked up in our communion liturgy, if you, if you read it through and listen to it carefully. There's a feast to come. And that's the feast Jesus is talking about in verses 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mentioned because they are the, the patriarchs, the, the, the heads of the family of, of Israel, the people of God from the Old Testament. This is the feast you've all been looking forward to, the great one that God's been promising. And Abraham's going to be there, and Isaac's going to be there, and Jacob's going to be there. And loads of other people too. And what's surprising here is this Gentile has shown us that the invitation is going to be far wider than God's people expect it. Gentiles too will be brought in. It's wider than expected, but it's also narrower. Verse 12, the subjects of the kingdom. Uh, That is the people who are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, The people who really ought to take their place there, they'll be thrown outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Jesus' point here is, this faith, this great faith that I've commended in this centurion, do you realize how vital it is? Because it is the key that determines who will get to the feast and who won't. Don't trust your background. Don't trust your heritage. Don't trust how many things you've done, how many times you've been to church. They might all be good things to do. Don't trust yourself to be able to get there by your own ability, by your own efforts. Faith in Jesus Christ alone determines who's in and who's out. Those who share Abraham's faith, the faith that God can and will do what he promises, that he can get us to the uh, the feast, That is the key thing. So great faith crosses great boundaries, sees the great Jesus and leads to the great feast. And so as Jesus has given us this model in the centurion of great faith, the question for us to take away is, where is our faith? What is our faith in Jesus like? Is it enough that we'll Cross a great boundary and go to him, whatever we're dealing with? Is it enough that we think he can provide all that we need to get us to the feast of the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, this passage which shows us what great faith looks like in action. Faith, of course, determines our behavior, like it did for the centurion. But in the end, it's the faith itself, the trust in Jesus, that is the vital thing. And so I pray for everyone here today that we would all examine our hearts and say, where is my trust really? And do I trust that Jesus can provide what is necessary? And we ask it in his precious name.
0: Amen.